What's up? Welcome to Bow Down, the teaching ministry of Pastor Chris Tress. This is an amazing place. I want to tell you that I seriously honor your pastor and everything I know about you from the few times we've been here. And uh, especially the, the, well, there's two things. I mean, you guys are amazing. But the, what God is doing here, you may not know this or sense it fully because you're here, you're a tree in the forest. And, but there's a very unique sense here because biblically, we're supposed to be very serious about our faith. Obviously, if Jesus was tormented and tortured, really, he was tortured before he was crucified, um, that it's a serious thing to have a faith. But at the same time, it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. So you don't wake up in the morning thinking, this is a serious faith. I'm going to do something about it. You wake up in the morning with new mercies and a tendency to look to God and say, I'm here. I'm here, Lord. What do you want me to do? And when that, it becomes a collective effort, that's what the church is supposed to look like. Very serious, but very lighthearted. You know, your heart in a sense in the outside of the, the tendency to be hardened on the inside, you're resisted, but on the inside is a heart that needs to be guarded because it's the heart that Jesus purchased for you and the mind that he purchased for us. So a new heart and new mind have to operate fully and the new heart and the new mind, which is the, the, the new covenant, responds to a crazy mixed up world that has a tendency of spiraling out of control from time to time. And I think this is one of those times when it's doing that in a rapid sense. So in saying that, we have some safeguards. And I think the, the, the greatest safeguard in the Bible is prophecy. The reason prophecy is so important is because Jesus was a prophet. He was the prophet, according to Deuteronomy 18, that Moses spoke of. There would be a prophet to come. Way later, he said, it's not me, he's to come. So Jesus is that prophet. But he's also much more than a prophet. When he prophesied initially, things that, that were said from him, and let me back up a little bit, not him personally because he wasn't here yet as a person incarnated, but God's prophecy that was given through the prophets, beginning with Moses, but even previous to Moses, to others, including Adam and Eve. So the prophetic story actually starts in the garden when God speaks about the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. That's the beginning of the redemption story. So that's what the story is. It is a redemption story. It's based on that promise, and it's also based on the nature of God. So we need to keep those two things in mind. But the thing that um, energizes us is then when we see things, when we read things, and it's future forward, forward to the future, hasn't happened yet, we have to do something with that. Either ignore it, discard it, or believe it. And when we believe it, and we start to see it coming true, which the Old Testament prophets did not have that, that experience. They looked to the future, they prophesied of it, but they didn't see the fulfillment of most of what they said. But when we see these things said, then it energizes us. And one, two of the things that Jesus, uh, God said about Israel, God speaking directly to Abraham, then to Isaac and Jacob and his descendants, was that I'm going to make a people out of you. Um, Abraham had no kids. 
He was old. He was beyond the age of having kids. So was his wife, Sarah. It was impossible. But he told him, you're going to have kids. Take them out to the sky. Look at it. Count it. Count the stars. Take it to the sea. Count the sand on the sea. You're going to have descendants more than that, Abraham. He didn't see that happening. Couldn't see it happening. But it happened. That was 3,500 years ago, and the Jews are still here. And they've been a people that was attempted to be wiped out generation after generation after generation with no land, with no language, with no culture. But they're back. They were always here. And he told them, I'm also going to give them a land. They're going to have an address. It's called Israel. And they'll always be there. If they're not there, then the sun, the moon, and the stars won't be here either. The forces of nature won't be here either. So when they're there, it's a symbol, it's a sign, it's a recognition that God is faithful. And if God is faithful in those big things, these enormous, impossible things, surely he's faithful when I'm having a terrible night and I can't sleep, everything's crumbling in my face, I feel like I'm betrayed, departed, I have no money, I have no reason to wake up, but God says, I will be with you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. That means tomorrow morning. And so why can I believe that? Because he said all these things previous to me, prior to me, before I entered the story and thought I was the center of it, God said these things to other people, and it came true. And certainly, if I want to exercise my faith, i got a reason to wake up tomorrow morning. Amen. And that's what it comes down to. So prophecy is critical to know that, and that we're supposed to understand prophecy. There was a tribe in Israel named Issachar, that they were men of understanding. All the other tribes were big and mighty and warriors. The tribe of Issachar said that they were men of understanding, smaller in number, but they understood the times, and they knew what Israel should do. And God used them. We don't know what. There's no other rest of the story there. But somehow that tribe played an important part in that moment of history. And it continued. So we could be here today. So it's important to be understanding of the times. The other thing, though, that Pastor Chris mentioned is preparation. When we start to, to understand prophecy and speaking about the things that are happening um, today, they're based on things that happened before we got here, both historically and biblically. So we have to have a biblical understanding of history, and we have to have a historical understanding of the world we live in. So these things are supposed to be connected. And as believers, we should also have an understanding, and this is severely lacking, of church history. It's important because all these things tie together to the reason God says certain things. Now, here's the biggest problem that we are here to be part of the solution, is that God introduced free will into the world. And it didn't go well. It didn't go well almost immediately when the scene opened up after creation. It just didn't go well. They chose wrong, and we are reaping the consequences of it. Eve, the mother of all of us, has the, the worst consequences of anyone alive because she lost her son because her other son killed him. And then the son that killed him had to go into exile. Where is your promise, God? Why did you let free will into the world? We never would have chosen the, the, the fruit if it wasn't there. So God is responsible for allowing that fruit in the garden. But if he's responsible for it, and he's a good God, we sing about him, we believe it, we tell others about it, then he must be vindicated for allowing free will into the world. And that's where we come in. 
We can't do it apart from him. We must do it with what he's given us, though. And he's given us a new nature, if we're believers, with a new mind, a new heart, and a right spirit, whereby he writes his law within our hearts and our minds so that we'd want to do it and we will do it. And sometimes we don't understand it, but we do it because of our love for him and his faithfulness. Because he's got a plan for tomorrow that's better than the one for today. And if we look at the future like that, when a lot of people are starting to cower in fear, when they hear about prophecies here and there, wondering how do I fit in, how will I make it, what should I do? God says, no, I'll be with you guys. Just like I was with them in the past, I will be with you. Yes, it will be troubling. But there's going to be something that's going to happen when the times, when the temperature rises, God is the dehumidifier. You know, Florida, we need dehumidifiers. We should walk around with dehumidifiers. But God knows when the temperature rises and we can barely breathe that he's going to be with us. And you know what he does? He builds resilience into us when we endure through the hardships because we stand out in a world that is falling down. Now, I don't know how I'm going to get to what I'm going to say, but I'm going to, uh, came here to say. <laughs> but when we look at prophecy, the most important place as Christians should be on Jesus' uh, last message, which is called the um, Beat, not Beatitudes, the Olivet Discourse, because he spoke it on the Mount of Olives. But he didn't start it on the Mount of Olives. He started it in the temple. Now, he was in the temple, and now you've got to realize, this is uh, right before the Passover. This is right before the night. That's the night of his betrayal. He's going to be tormented, crucified, and die very shortly. So he's telling his disciples things, not because it's pre-planned. He knew it was going to happen, but he didn't plan it to happen. And his disciples were with him in the temple when he was rebuking all the religious leaders who were in the temple. And they were probably all there because the Passover week was coming. It was there. And um, they come to Jerusalem by commandment. All the men have to come to Jerusalem three times a year. So they're all there, all the big shots. If you come to Israel today, you'll see Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, ultra-ultra-extreme Orthodox, and the most Orthodox of all is the ultra-Orthodox butcher that makes kosher food because he's critical. If he goes, we're in trouble. So, but this is what, it, you'll see them by the hats, you will know who's the most ultra of all because they will parade themselves like that. The religious system is poisonous. It's still poisonous. You don't have to go to Israel to experience it. We are immersed in a deceptive climate where that represents God in many ways that are false. That's a religious spirit. We're living in a time when deception is like the air we breathe. And if we're not discerning, we're going to be sucked into it because it's so readily available. So when Jesus was at the temple, he wanted to finish the job of setting these people straight, and he did. Every faction of this religious spirit was there in the temple, and he rebuked them. And his disciples were there like, uh-oh, we are in huge trouble. And they saw his temperament change. I can't imagine, you know, turning the tables is one thing, but when you're speaking to power, that's intense. That is intense. And so he told them, the last thing he said before he left them, he told it in tears. And I don't think he told them directly. I think he just said it out loud to himself. 
He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says, how I would have loved to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not because you missed the time of your visitation. And his disciples heard him say this, and they were troubled. And he left the temple. They all did. And the, as they were leaving the temple, I think his disciples wanted to calm him down, to console him, and said, Jesus, look at these beautiful rocks. Look at the, these, these incredible stones, how well they're adorned. It's just amazing, isn't it? And he said, not one of them is going to lay on top of another. What? Why did he say that? And then they walked. They walked from the temple, which is up here. Israel is a, a city on a hill. So he walked on the mount where the temple was, and he walked down through the temple stairs, most likely through a gate. And then he walked on with his disciples through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And I believe they were silent the whole way. We don't see anything, hear anything about it. Nothing's written. And it's probably two-hour walk, maybe, for these guys less. But he knew what was going to happen next, and he knew what was going to happen right in the days we're living in. And he didn't, he didn't say a word more about the stones, but his disciples did. They said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? And he said, just like Jesus, he didn't answer them. He just said, don't be deceived. You know, similar if you read the story of when um, Nicodemus came tonight. He asks him a question. He doesn't answer his question. He gets to the heart of why you ask the question. And they wanted something more than what he was going to tell them. But he started telling them things. Things that were terrible things that were going to happen. But he didn't want them to happen. He came to the world to save, not to condemn the world. We're already living in condemnation. We don't need any more. He came to save, to set free. But they didn't want him. They didn't understand the time, see, of his visitation. Now, that makes me think that we better start understanding the times because there's a visitation that's called the second coming of Jesus that we're all looking forward to. And some think it's going to come at any moment, at any point in time, and I could kind of relax because once that happens, I don't have these problems. I don't have to worry about paying my mortgage. I don't have to worry, will I ever buy a house? I don't have to worry if my boss is going to follow, fire me today or if the price of gas is going to keep rising. I don't have to worry about those things because Jesus is coming back at any minute. Now, I'm not saying not to think that because we should be expectant. God made us to be expectant because there are great expectations and there are false expectations. We need to discern by the scriptures and by the nature of God and the things that are going around, the history before us, biblically and historical, and start to think with discerning minds and make decisions accordingly of how to live and how to represent him well. Because that's what we're here to do. People are troubled. So he told them about all these troubling events that are going to take place that you know we've heard of. Um, her, earthquakes and all kinds of natural disasters, wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, plagues. Um, just you name the disaster. He made a big category. You got a little bit specific. The Old Testament prophets are more specific about how incredible and intense they will be. But they knew that because they knew the prophets. They read them. They understand what they were saying. And they didn't like what they heard. The day of the Lord is not a sweet thing. But 
Is that all there is to it? Is it just that troubling? But then he said, before these things happen, and this is the Jewish mindset, you could start going one direction, and the next thing you know, you head in the other direction, whereas the, 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 um, the Greek mindset, the Roman mindset of that day, is, is forward thinking, like you, you're going from A to D, you go A, B, C, D. The Jewish mind, you go from A, and then you circle around, and you come back to A. It's different. But this is how Jesus taught and this is Jewish thought. So you have to think in those terms. It's natural to them. So when Jesus said, these things are going to happen, and it's like, ah! And he said, but before these things happen, these are going to happen. They go, oh my God, that's even worse. Because it was atmospheric. It had to do with the trouble that they might be in. And it had to do with the destruction, not just the temple, but of the city of Jerusalem. And how the Romans are going to come in and trample this place so bad that one and a half to two million Jews died um, between the 70 AD and 135 AD. They were alive, these same disciples that he told these things are going to happen, not with the numbers, but he told them it was going to happen and they'd be scattered into the world. Happened already. It's already happened. Now, prophecy is partial and then it's complete. Most prophecy starts in one place in scripture and ends in another place future. Just like a child will be born, a son will be given. He wasn't born immediately, you know. Jesus came quite a while later. Was that important? No. Um, so we have to think that way. So a lot of the things that Jesus spoke have yet to be completed, but they, they, we got a taste of them by reading the scriptures and knowing history. So it seemed like it was all over for the Jews when the temple was destroyed and then the city was destroyed. There was nothing left. They didn't have a land to live in. Why have Jews if they have no place? God promised them. Certainly he's done with them. And that's kind of the interpretation of the church merging into the world that we now live in today that what are the Jews still doing here? I thought he was, God was done with them 2,000 years ago. What do we do with them? Oh, it's no, no problem. God's going to deal with them at the end of this. When we're gone, God will deal with them. And they're so stubborn that they need, you know, pff, 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 come on, guys, believe in Jesus. Get over it. It's not how it's going to work. It was tried, attempted for 2,000 years, and it hasn't worked yet. Why would God start that train moving again when it doesn't go down the track? It doesn't get there. So it has to be another way. Oh, there actually is another way. It's in Romans 11. The Gentiles show up and they, out of their love for the Jewish Messiah and their love for the Jewish people because they're the people that originally came along that God gave them all this recognition and identification to be his people, to bring the, the blessing into the nations. Uh, but now it's our turn. But what do we do with them? Well, you love them and you bring them back to where they belong in the kingdom as partners with you, which is called the one new man, Ephesians 2 and 3 which is also part uh, and parcel with the Gentile believers to make the bride of Christ. In Israel, it's the bride of Messiah, which we were just talking about. But the prophecy that I think you need to, t to really link to is that Jesus will not return until the bride is prepared for the groom. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we have to wait another 50, 100 years? That's the part that is the mystery because it's dependent upon the bride. 
If the bride doesn't even start looking through catalogs to look what her wedding gown should be, and this being the catalog, this isn't the Bible, but it has it in here, lots of them. By the way, this is more authentic because when you read, it's a tablet, and it's also when you read it, you scroll down, so it's much more authentic than the leafy one. Um, so it came earlier, and it's still here. So the, um, the thing that we need to attend to is say, well, what does it mean to me that the bride makes herself ready? Because when we read in, in Revelation that the, at this, after the seventh trumpet is, is blasted, by the way, this is, you know, um, no, today is not, yes, it is. Today is still Rosh Hashanah, which is the blowing of the trumpets. Happy New Year. <laughs> so, um, but here you are in the seventh trumpet. The trumpet sounds, the, it, the biggest angel had to blow this one. And, and all of heaven is rejoicing because the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that is, that's the end of the redemption story. Now, there's more that goes on in the story, but as far as we're concerned, you know, there's the future after that is really on... It's, it's clear enough to say, I can't wait till it happens, but we don't know all the details. And by the way, I'm looking with everything in me for Jesus to return because it's going to be better for all of us, all of us. But in between the time that Jesus spoke and the time when that last trumpet is blown, the bride makes herself ready for the coming of her groom. The groom is waiting for that. And so in preparation for that, there's many things that God will reveal to you personally that Pastor Chris will help you with in preparation for the bride because it's a collective sense of individuals who are doing God's will. Does that make sense? Because he needs to be vindicated. Don't forget that. He put us up here to represent him. As Jesus was in the world, so are we. And when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. But until then, we do the best with what we've got to be like him now. <clears throat> and that's pretty exciting. But there's one thing within <clears throat> the, the part of the prophecy that he spoke following the disaster side was that there was going to be a social side of the, the atmosphere during those days, which we call the last days, the end times, the Jews would call the day of the Lord the season for the Messiah to return and the messianic age to believe. Uh, it's different for the Jews, but for us we believe that something incredible is going to take place where righteous will reign ultimately and completely. So that's when A circles back to A again because it started in the garden when everything was perfect and it's going to end in a place of perfection. Whatever the address is on earth, it's going to be perfect. And we'll be there to accompany God, to walk with him in the garden, to do whatever we can do and will do with all the skill and capabilities that we never dreamed of. And we'll do it together with people we love, people we've yet to meet, people that we read about or we've read about. <clears throat> so it's exciting to look forward into the future like that. In fact, I believe that the days ahead are going to be far more exciting than the days now. And I'm eagerly looking forward to them before Jesus returns. That seems weird, maybe, but it shouldn't. Because we're made for that. This is the thing, we're made for that. All this stuff that's been pent up and cultivated within us is not just meant to come back next someday, Sunday and sing about. 
It's about to live about. And this church lives it out. This is what, to me, is incredible honor to be here because you guys live it out. You walk into this house and you know it's different from a tree that's not in the forest. You don't take for granted what you're living with and amongst. I'll tell you when to start. We, we teach the people who come to Israel with us. We, we, we're, not, we're going to the places. We'll go to all these really great biblical sites and historical sites. But we consider the people more important than the places. So you will see people, not just the partners that we have. You'll see people everywhere. Look at them. Notice them. If you get a chance, look in their eyes. Say something. Hey, th I just saw you pick up that piece of paper. I was wondering where all the trash comes from all the tourists. You do that, huh? Thank you for that. Like, you, you, you saw me? You know, I mean, Israelis and Arabs and Jews, they don't know, Christians even know that they live there. They think it's like, you know, a tourist spot, that's all. But we say, look at the people. So start looking at the people. Don't just look at a person like this and walk by, like, look at a person. Look at their eyes. You got eyes. Hey, I like your eyes. What's inside those eyes? You know? And what you see, when you see someone, ask God to see through his eyes. See this person through, I want to see this person through your eyes. You might not know what you're seeing right away, but God will show you something that may lead to a conversation that two words, ten words, years and years of friendship might develop because you see something that God sees and that person doesn't know anyone sees that. How did you see it? God gives you a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. This is what the days are going to be like ahead. It's going to be miraculous days. There's no doubt in my mind. Because when this prophecy circles around, it goes through, before it gets to, back to this garden-like world, the Garden of Eden-like world, it goes through the Exodus. And the Exodus was a time of freedom, of liberty. The Jews were living as slaves for 400 years, and in between the ninth and the tenth plague, God said something to them. He said, I'm going to make a distinction now between the ninth plague and the plague that will bring liberty to them, the, the night of the Passover. I'm going to make a distinction now between the Egyptians and the Jews. And he did. On that night was the night he freed them. The plague went into the Egyptian camp and it did not touch the Israeli camp because the blood of the lamb that was smeared on the doorposts, the angel of death just flew right over them, spared them. They were all spared. But there was also a very interesting, very easy to miss, is that when they left, a mixed multitude left with them. Multitude is a lot. And it says before that that God told Moses to tell, their, tell your people to tell their neighbors. Well, their neighbors were all Jews because they were living in this ghetto-like experience. Why could, how could they tell his neighbors what he's about to say? But he said this, to give me your gold and silver. That's a weird thing. What do you need gold and silver for if you travel through the wilderness? Well, they didn't know what they were going. They didn't know where they were going. They were just willing to follow, which is also a miracle. Can you imagine that? There was probably one and a half million people that left that night from Egypt, from slavery. 
We know that because they counted the men that were available for war. So the mixed multitude was not Jews. It was a multitude that means it was Egyptians and scattered out of the folk. But they were Gentiles. So their neighbors were Gentiles. Well, why were they neighbors? And this is what I think, is that these people were watching the Jews because they were chosen for something that was really different. They watched through nine plagues and said, these people, they got a God of gods because that's what God came to do, to judge the gods of Egypt. And in judging the gods of Egypt, he set the people free because he chose them to be a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests. They weren't a nation yet. He called them to be a nation and a kingdom of priests. That means that they were going to have this, this opportunity to speak about God for other people and speak to other people about the one true God, the only God. That was their role, their calling. And so these multitude was, you need it, you got it. Why? Because I've seen your God and I've seen the way you respond to him. A million and a half people responded to their leadership. That's a miracle too. And they went off in safety into freedom. But it was through miracles all along the way, those nine other plagues were miraculous things that happened. And when they went into the wilderness, the miracles just started to multiply. When the enemy was on their trail, he split the sea. When they were thirsty, he split the rock. When they were hungry, he sent food from heaven. People look at the last days and they go, I got to get 10,000 gallons of water. I don't know where it's going to fit, but we're going to move the couch out if we have to because the times are going to be so troubling. And I bought about 14 rifles yesterday. And so I need the ammo for those, so we're going to have to move the bed out to fit all the ammunition and the guns that I have because we have to defend ourselves. And this is the mindset of our population of, obviously I'm exaggerating, but we say, no, 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 no. And this is where Psalm 91 comes in. You could put it up there, but this is just for a visual. I believe that Psalm 91 is a prophecy. Now, a prophecy, like I said before, is partially fulfilled, but then ultimately fulfilled. If this is a prophecy, that means it will be fulfilled. And I believe that this is a description of the days that we're entering into. <clears throat> I want you to read this. Obviously, memorize it would be much better. You will be better off if you memorize this because I think it's going to be a mantra. We're going to, it's going to be our song, the song of deliverance, like Moses and Miriam had a song. This will be it, Psalm 91. And, and even start, after you memorize it in English, Start memorizing it in Hebrew and find out what the Hebrew words mean. Just start with verse 1 and hang out there for a while. Because you're going to see that, wow, God could really make this possible. All these things that seem so far off that people, COVID kind of like rebirthed Psalm 91 because it was about plagues and pestilence and stuff. But it was almost like a rabbit foot. I'm going to say this 15 times today. And, you know, rubbing... Rabbit foot mean anything to anybody? It used to. It was a lucky charm. Um, Four-leaf clover, something like that. Um, but anyway, 
We've got to take the word seriously. But when we do, things start to change. Our countenance starts to change. Our mind starts to unfold with new information. And we're able to be useful. See, we're made to be useful. When the world is crumbling... See, this is the thing about believers, is that when we see somebody on the side of the road that's battered and bruised and bleeding, do we cross over to the other side and say, whoa... I hope he didn't see me, whoever did that, and keep going as fast as we can. Or, as believers, we say, oh my God, he needs help. And we cross the side. Is the Good Samaritan just Jesus? A picture of just Jesus? Or is it a picture of someone who follows Jesus? That's what I believe. I believe the Good Samaritan was a real person who met Jesus somewhere and was transformed. And when he walked the road, he said, whoa, he ran to this guy, and you know what he did next. Are Christians meant to do that or keep going? Or when the giant is standing in the room and everyone else is cowering because he's there and he's cursing us and we don't know what to do with him, do we all sit there and tremble because we think he's going to kill us? Or do we run and say, he's just a giant. I got a slingshot. And then all of history changes in a moment. What are we made for? So are we made to cower in fear for the future? Seriously. The days are sometimes so terrible for me that I'm like, you got to be kidding me, God. You know, you tell me to love everyone, that you love the world? I think you didn't know this guy was going to show up. <laughs> love him too. But everything that we experience, Jesus has experienced in multiplied ways. And then you have to learn to read Isaiah 53 in Hebrew really slowly. You're going to be shocked out of your boots when you start hear, understanding what it means. The words mean, the Hebrew words mean. It's different than the English. It's so much different. Um, it's going to make you cry, I guarantee it. But so don't go enter it lightly just to memorize it, but just to read it and find out what the Hebrew words mean. So this is to understand the times better. Going back to this, the one verse that kills me is that Jesus said that there will be a great falling away. I can't, I can't handle that. I don't know about you, but that one troubles me more than any because I think of people like you or other churches I've been to where Christians are, people that have come on our tours, for instance, people that I know and love. I've seen already enough Christians fall away. And to fall away is not just a stumble and fall. It's, the word in Greek is scandalizo. And what it means is that you turn your back on the one that you should honor, even to the point of worship, and turn away from him and give that attention to someone else or something else. So you're exchanging your love, your loyalty, your friendship, your respect for someone who you should for someone or something that you shouldn't. That's what falling away literally means. Scandalous. It's a scandal. It's scandalous to fall away. But Jesus said there will be. And I think he said this in tears because he saw that when he was on the Mount of Olives. He looked around. He saw, this is what's going to happen here. Are you going to do something about it? He doesn't just say, we don't say, well, Jesus said it's going to happen. Nothing I can do about it. I don't think that's who Jesus is. He expects us 
to do what he would do and do it. And so when we walk into trouble, you all have people in your lives that are having troubles. I'm not saying that you've got to call them up as soon as you get out of here and tell them to get out of their troubles. Everything's going to be okay. But be in tune with the Spirit of God to let you know when you do make that phone call. Phone calls are better, by the way. Um, I don't like that idea. And I think that the reason people will fall away is because the expectations they had didn't take place. And they're saying, church, are you kidding me? It's a bunch of hypocrites. I'm not going to church. They say one thing, they do another, and anything what they say never happens anyway. Why should I? There's no place for me anyway. Why should I go? And that is going to accelerate a falling away. We're experiencing it big time. I am really blessed to see young people here. I'm blessed to see older people. Some like me. But we are going to have a merger because the one new man is made up of Jew and Gentile. And there has to be a one new man to finish this story because God said it was his eternal purpose. Ephesians 2 and 3. You need to read and understand that. Read it in a, in a new light. Or read it in a fresh way. I'm not trying to make anything up there. But God also calls that his masterpiece. The one new man is his masterpiece because it brings peace into the world. An atmosphere, a culture, culture of peace where there's no more Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. Wait a minute, how's that possible? Are we living in that day? No, that's not what he means. He means that spiritually there is no superiority. There's no religious spirit to govern the, to rule the day. There will be peace and there will be this sense of racial equality, not division, that is so heightened in our day. These things are fruit of the one new man. This is what he said. And we are supposed to be peacemakers, but peacemakers have to make peace amongst those who we don't even know yet, because in order for Jesus to return, he said this other thing, is that you will know, before he left Jerusalem, the same time, he actually said it for the second time. He said, you will no longer see me. He's talking to this multitude of uh, leaders, religious leaders, and, you know, multitude of people there too, that you will no longer see me until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, which means, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why would he say that? Well, that's a prophecy too. It's from Psalm 118. But he said that because he meant it. He doesn't say things just random. You won't see me. So what does that mean? Well, Revelation 1.6 says that when he returns, every eye will see him. Even the ones who pierced him. He makes it very clear. Even those guys who don't want to see me, they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How is that going to happen? How am I going to finish in one minute? How is that going to happen when, when um, they don't want to see Jesus? 
If you talk to Jewish people today, somebody told me the other day, I talked to someone, what do you think of Jesus? He goes, I give him no thought, a Jewish person. He was very frustrated. I want to have a conversation. We don't think about Jesus. We just don't. Well, some say that, Jews do. But others say, we want nothing to do with Jesus because for the last 2,000 years, we have been persecuted in his name. And we've been accused of killing him. Why would we want to see him? They don't know Jesus. They don't know Yeshua. But they're starting to know him. Because of Gentiles like you, who are saying, I want to come alongside. I want to play my part. If this is the one new man, if this is the bride that he's talking about, this collaboration between unlikely people, where he'll break the wall of hostility once and for all, I want to take place in this. What's my part, Lord? And he will show you. I don't have to give you three steps. He will show you. And in the process, you will absorb the pain of someone who might be very close to you, who is going in the direction of scandalizo, of falling away from the one to whom worship is due. Brother? Thank you, Paul. Hey, worship team, come on up, please. Uh, prayer partners, come on up. Uh, church, you have your Bibles open to Psalm 91. I want you to focus in at verse 14, please. Psalm 91, verse 14. Again, Paul was talking about Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus prophesied and he, and he said these things. Many are going to fall away. They're going to betray one another. They're going to hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is going to happen. We're not called to cower back in fear. We're called to move with an expectation and with authority, trusting in what Paul said. And let's look at Psalm 91. Let this be the cry of your heart. As we fix our gaze on our king, allow his word, and you can keep the lights up, please, Jeremy, until we read this together. As we worship our king, let's focus on our love for him and focus on his love for us. That cross, he fixed his love upon us on that cross. The nails did not keep him there. He fastened himself to that cross. Why? Because he loves you. And your response back and our response back, understanding that many will fall away, that the love of many will grow cold. Hey, this is our jam right here. Psalm 91, 14. And this is the Lord speaking because he holds fast to me in love. Do you love Jesus this morning? Because she holds fast to me in love. I will deliver. I will protect. Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's stand, church. And now the lights, Jeremy. So that everything just kind of fades.
God, may we be like the sons of Issachar, understanding the times we're about to enter and seeing the the wars and the rumors of wars and understanding that that people will fall away because the love, the love of many will just grow cold. But that's not our inheritance, Lord. It's not our inheritance. I pray for our gaze to be upon your cross. I thank you for your promise that nothing will snatch us out of your hand. That you are with us always, never to leave us or forsake us. That you have promised when the enemy comes in like a flood, you will raise up a standard. But God, I pray for our response, our response today, Jesus. Because he loves me, because he holds fast to my name, I will deliver. And we just ask for your grace, God, that you would allow us as a people to be completely in love with you and that we would live in the reality of Psalm 91 as a lifestyle. Forgive us, God, for praying it over our home and our families as it was some type of trinket rabbit foot. May it be motivated out of a love for you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the cross. Help us to worship you now. Help us to hold fast to you now, knowing that you are holding fast to us. Thank you, God, for the cross. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit of God that has sealed us into the day of redemption. Help us, Lord, to kiss towards you to kiss towards you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for visiting us today. Make sure to check us out online at www.bowdownchurch.com.